Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to Mark chapter 6 as we return to our series on the Gospel of Mark. I certainly appreciate uh, Sammy Pierce uh, filling in for me last week and some of you may be asking, am I going to preach a 20-minute sermon uh, like he did last week? And I think most of you know me better than that. In fact, I might take some of the time he left on the clock last week. <laughs> But uh, seriously, I appreciate uh, Sammy uh, breaking the bread of life last week to the congregation in my absence. Let me also uh, mention that as Kevin has said, Butch Black did pass away this morning. You may be asking if we know anything about arrangements yet. And the hospital was telling me uh, just this morning that uh, because Butch has no family and there's no, been no contact with this one uh, sole brother for I, I think it's now been more than three decades, uh, they have to do a search to try to find him. They have to hold the body uh, at the hospital for 10 days before it can even be released to us for a service. And so there's nothing immediate pending there. Just uh, stay tuned on that. Uh, I'm going to ask you this morning, in addition to Mark chapter 6, if you would uh, find John chapter 6 as well. And because later on in the message, beginning under the second point, uh, we are going to be supplying some material in this episode from John's gospel. Very excited about the message this morning. Only Jesus truly satisfies. Amen? Only Jesus truly satisfies. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. And uh, we're actually going to begin in verse 30. Not verse 32, but we're going to begin in verse 30. Uh, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus. And told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognizing them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go uh, into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. 
And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word. And I pray that through the power of your spirit, uh, you would help us to understand it. Lord, we thank you that you're such a good God. You have given us your word that we might understand who you are, that we might understand our need, that we might learn about Jesus, that we might come to him in faith. Lord, teach us from this passage today. There are so many rich lessons to be found herein. I pray that you would feed us, enrich us, equip us, strengthen us. Lord, enable us to do your will. I'm just a man. I can only speak to human ears. But Lord, your spirit can speak to hearts. And I pray that he would be pleased to do so today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to uh, this passage, beginning here in verse 30, uh, we find that it's actually one of the most profound passages in all of the Bible. Now, I need to let you know that this passage has been understood in some various ways. Various ways, I might add, that fall seriously short of what I believe the real meaning of the passage truly is. You see, one of the inadequate ways of understanding this text is uh, some would believe that a miracle took place simply in the hearts of the people gathered here this day. That Christ induced the selfish to share their provisions And when everybody shared what they had together among themselves, it was enough to go around. That's not what the text teaches us. Others think the feeding should be understood as a sacramental meal, like the Lord's Supper, where every person involved was only given just a a tiny little fragment. I like what the early church father Augustine says about this type of skepticism. He marvels at the blindness of those who discern God's miracles only in humanistic ways. He writes, For certainly the government of the whole world is a greater miracle than the satisfying of 5,000 men with five loaves. And yet no, no man wonders at the former. But the latter men wonder at, not because it is greater, but because it is rare. For who even now feeds the whole world but he who creates the cornfield from a few grains? You see what Augustine is saying? I mean, you look around every day at how God feeds the world, provides food, feeds the wild animal kingdom daily. And we never wonder at that. But we might come to this text and wonder at this single episode. 
The third and the only way to look at this story and the only way that is faithful to the word of God is to hold to the fact that the Lord Jesus as sovereign God did something that can only be explained as a miracle. And what we see here is the Lord's ability to provide for our needs in ways that we could have never planned out in advance. I want you to see with me, first of all, this morning, a serious lack. Look at verses 35 and 36. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now Mark records this event following the disciples going out in verses 7 to 13. You remember that passage where Jesus sent them out. Jesus had trained them somewhat and then he sends them out to go and do ministry. And then between that story and this story, last time we looked at the episode of John the Baptist. How Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. That's like a story set in between the flow of the narrative. As far as chronology, you could, you could really stop at verse 13 and then pick up again at verse 30 to understand the flow of the chronology. And as we do so, we see that even Jesus in his incarnate state needed rest. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And he realized that after a very busy time of ministry, his disciples needed rest. When they come back and report to him all that they've seen and, and done, witness God do as they've been out on ministry, Jesus recognizes that they need to go away into a desolate place and they need to recharge their batteries. It's very important that we do so. And so in verse 31, we see Jesus taking them to a secluded place. Now let me say to you that there's a very rich history in the Bible of God dealing with his people in the wilderness and in secluded places. There are times that we need to get away from the rat race of life and we need to allow God to refresh us and recharge us. And that's what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. I like what Dr. Vance Havner said on one occasion. He said, if you do not come apart, then you will come apart. But notice that uh, when the crowd see them leave and they recognize them, they, they knew apparently where they were headed and they ran there and they beat them there. But rather than being angry because they couldn't get alone, in verse 34 we're told that Jesus had compassion on them because he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 34, God chastened the religious shepherds and pronounced judgment upon them because they weren't interested in feeding the sheep, the people. They only cared about themselves and they were not teaching the people the word of God. 
And consequently the people were like sheep without a shepherd and they were subject to the wolves around them who would lead them astray and devour them. Folks, the primary role of a spiritual shepherd is to feed the flock the word of God. Here the people that Mark describes have seen Jesus do miracles and so they've come back for more. Now elsewhere we learn in the Gospels that they're following him for entirely the wrong reasons simply so he can take care of their physical needs. But nonetheless Jesus receives them and he teaches them and ministers to them. I want you to see first of all here that that the people lacked food. The people lacked food. And from verse 44 we're told that the men alone numbered 5,000. Now when you factor in women and children estimates range anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people being in this group. Well it was late we're told. And the place was secluded. And everybody was hungry. But not only did the people lack food, but we see also that the disciples lacked faith. Verse 37 tells us that Jesus turned to them and said, you give them something to eat. And then verse 37 uh, says to us, uh, they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and, and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii was about seven months worth of wages when you figure that a common day laborer made about a denarius a day. Folks, what's going on here? What's going on is that the disciples are calculating. They are thinking about the hugeness of the situation and how impossible it is in their minds. There is no way they're thinking that human resources alone can take care of this problem. What we see here is a picture of our lack. You may be in a situation right now where you're at the end of your rope. You've calculated, you've tried everything, but nothing seems to be working. You may be in a situation where all of your attempts have failed. All of your planning has failed. Everything you're doing is coming up short. It could be an emotional need, it could be a financial need, it could be some kind of need in your family. And certainly we have to admit that we, we were all in this situation spiritually speaking. There is a total inability on our part to meet our own needs spiritually. All of our attempts... To reconcile ourselves to a holy God fall short of the glory of God. And so folks, here's a serious lack that all of us have experienced in some kind of way at some time in our lives. And we can calculate all that we want to, but the need is just too great. 
This is so true to life today. We do our best. We come up short. And so what do we then do? We fret and we worry. And somehow or another, we don't believe that God can be trusted with our problems. We know he saved us in the past. And that's the greatest miracle of all. We've seen him change other people. We've witnessed his provision time and time again. I mean, we've never really done without. And we certainly haven't done without to the point that we died. And yet it's so easy to focus on our insufficiency. And it's so difficult to focus on his all sufficiency. We have short memories of what God can do. And this was their problem. They just didn't seem to get it. Don't you wonder how Jesus must have been frustrated because time and time again it, it surely had to appear to him that his disciples aren't truly understanding what he's about. And the crowd certainly didn't. It kind of reminds me of a Sunday school teacher on one occasion trying to teach her boys and girls in class uh, of the dangers when they grow up if they they got into uh, some type of alcohol or drug abuse. And so she takes some earthworms and and two cylinders of, of, of liquid, water in one and alcohol in the other, and she takes the earthworms and she drops them in the water And the earthworms swim around and they're okay. And then she takes earthworms and drops them in the cylinder full of alcohol. They curl up and die. And she says, class, do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? And little Johnny raises his hand and says, I know, teacher, I know. And she said, Johnny, tell us what the lesson is here. He said, if you grow up and ever get worms, you need to drink lots of alcohol. Jesus must have felt that way sometimes about his disciples. They just don't seem to understand. And surely this was one of those occasions. He must marvel when he works time and time again. And we witnessed that. His disciples witnessed that. But they still didn't seem to connect the dots. Second thing I want you to notice with me is a selfless lad. A selfless lad. Now this is where I told you over in John chapter 6 we're we're supplying details from there. But look look here in in Mark at verses uh, 38 and following. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, again, John's gospel tells us there's the little lad who had this food. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. This little fella uh, is an impressive little guy when you read John's account. You see, first of all, what he possessed. He has a small little sack lunch for the day. It's the lunch of a very humble person, even a poor person back in those days. You see, barley cakes were the bread of the poor. Barley was oftentimes what you would give to your livestock. But he has barley cakes and fish. And the two small fish would be what you and I would consider to be sardines. That's all he has. 
But I'm sure it's a little lunch that his mother lovingly packed that day. It would be enough food for him. I want you to see also what he surrendered. We see that what the little was, the little bit of food was that he had, he willingly gave it up. He puts it into the Lord's hands. And what a great lesson that is for us. Folks, God has an amazing ability to take weak things and confound the wise. I think of all of the insignificant people and insignificant things God used in the scripture. For example, you remember Moses when God called Moses to go back to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel. And Moses was like, Lord, what am I going to do? What am I going to say to Pharaoh? And God said, what is that in your hand? And Moses had in his hand a rod, a staff. And what did God tell him to do? God told him to throw it down and he threw it down and it became a serpent. God was going to use that staff as a miracle before Pharaoh's eyes. Then I think of the jawbone of the donkey that, that Samson used to take on and kill Philistines. And then I think of David, uh, King David, before he became king, when he was a little shepherd boy. And he faced up against the giant Goliath, and he took his little slingshot out and, and with those smooth stones, and he killed the giant. And then who can forget a virgin girl named Mary and Joseph the carpenter. That's what God has always done. Taken small things, weak things, and use them in mighty ways. Sometimes we don't offer small things to God because we think it, it's just not much. It's not worth anything. What could God do with this? And think of the blessings that we miss when we don't put small things into the Lord's hands. I mean, for instance, think about your testimony. If you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and you've been saved, you have a testimony about how God saved you. And you may not think that's worth much, but God can take your testimony and use it as a powerful witnessing tool uh, to those around you in your circles of influence. That's exactly what we see back in Mark chapter 5 when God, uh, when, when Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac. And the, the, the demoniac, now delivered of demons, he wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, no, what I want you to do is I want you to go back to your village and tell your people the great things that God has done for you. He had a testimony. That Christ was going to use. You got a testimony. You may not feel like there's much else you have. Whereby you can serve the Lord. But you have your testimony. Are you willing to put your testimony of how Jesus saved you into God's hands. And say God I don't know how you want to use this in the people around me. But however you can use my testimony of my salvation. How you saved me. God I want to use it. Uh, and be a witness of you. You have a spiritual gift also. At the moment of your conversion, something else wonderful happened. You were baptized with the Spirit of the living God and you were sealed. You belonged to Him. 
The Spirit of God is a seal on your life that you belong to Him. And along with the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that you received at least one spiritual gift. Every child of God has at least one spiritual gift. We read about spiritual gifts in passages like Romans 12, for example. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, in Ephesians chapter 4, we read of our spiritual gifts. And if you're a born-again child of God, you've been given a spiritual gift. And the purpose of the spiritual gifts uh, is that that we are to use our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, the local church. And so you have at least one spiritual gift and you are to be using that spiritual gift to make this church a stronger and more complete church. And we all have different gifts. And Paul says just like the different parts of the body, we put all the gifts together and we see a complete picture of how God wants to work and how God wants to use us. What are you doing with your spiritual gift that God gave you at your conversion? Are you developing it? Are you using it for the good of this body of believers? It may seem small. But you need to remember what the Apostle Paul said. Sometimes the gifts in the body, and and he compares it to the human body, the members of the body that we would think are the smallest and the most insignificant may actually be the, the parts of the body, the spiritual gift that the body needs the most. How are you using your spiritual gift? How are you using your testimony? Small things. Don't miss the blessing of seeing what God does with small things. Just think when we, again, when we compare this episode with what John says about it. Think of the impression that was left upon this little lad who put his lunch into the hands of the Lord and saw what he did. Can't you just imagine now the conversation he had with his mom when he got home? Son, did you have enough lunch to eat today? Yes, ma'am. In fact, there was enough to feed 5,000 men. Son, you need to quit lying. I'm not lying. You go to your room, and when your dad gets home today, he's going to deal with you. Just think of the blessing that the multitude would have missed had this little lad not given up what was his to offer. You see, folks, Jesus could have created bread and fish out of nothing. God can create ex nihilo out of nothing. And he could have done that. But he chose to use what was offered. He used what was offered to accomplish his purposes. And that's like the gospel today. God could do it all without us, but he's decided not to. You'll notice that Jesus not only used the loaves and the fish of the little boy, but he distributed distributed the food to the crowd through the hands of the disciples. In other words, he used them as well. He wanted them to see what was happening as they passed out the food. Don't let others miss a blessing because you don't offer up what you have to the Lord. Don't get to heaven one day and hear Jesus say what he 
could have done through you had you only been yielded to him. Thirdly, I want you to see the sovereign Lord. The sovereign Lord. Verses 41 to 44. Jesus took the loaves and the fish. He gave thanks and he broke them. And the tense of the verb suggests that he did not create one huge mass of food all at once. One big pile of food all at once uh, for people to come and pick up. Rather, he broke and distributed. He broke and distributed. He broke and distributed. It's continuous action. And as long as he was breaking and distributing, there was bread to eat and there was fish to eat. The Bible tells us that everybody didn't just simply get a little tiny fragment, but everybody got as much as they wanted and they were completely filled and satisfied. And not only that, but you'll notice that each one of the 12 disciples was able to take a basket and gather up the leftovers. Folks, this is such an amazing miracle. Do you realize other than the resurrection accounts, this is the only miracle that all four Gospels record? What an amazing miracle this is. And what makes it so profound is the effect that it should have had. You see, Jesus didn't do miracles simply on a whim, just to do miracles. He did miracles to meet human need and so that people could understand his identity. And right here, he's doing both. He's definitely meeting a human need, but he's also doing something that would say something about himself. You see, Jewish tradition stated that manna was still being made and stored in heaven. And they believed that when the Messiah came, the giving of manna would be resumed. The Messiah would give them bread from heaven. They remembered how Moses gave them manna in the wilderness, though it was not Moses, but it was God. And they were looking for another like Moses to come. And they believed that the Messiah, in many ways, would be like Moses, but greater than Moses, which, of course, Jesus was. And so Jesus has has just done a miracle that lays right alongside of Jewish tradition and expectations. Folks, this is a messianic claim here. Jesus is demonstrating in this miracle that he's the Messiah. He's giving them bread from heaven. Like he said in John 5, 36, But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me. Jesus is doing something here that demonstrates he's the long-awaited Messiah. Now I want you to turn over to John's gospel with me for a moment. John's gospel beginning in verse 25 uh, of John chapter 6. And let's, let's pick up reading what's going on here. 
When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the work? of God and Jesus answered them this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent so they said to him then what sign do you do keep in mind he's just fed the 5,000 and they asked what sign do you do that we may see and believe you what work do you perform our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day so the Jews grumbled about him because he said I'm the bread that came down from heaven they said is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know he does uh, how does he now say I've come down from heaven Jesus answered them do not grumble among yourselves no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day There's a couple of things in this passage here that we learn about Jesus being the sovereign Lord. We see here, first of all, that Jesus is the source of life. Jesus confronts them here because they are chasing after nothing more than physical satisfaction in life. And you know, there's a lot of people like that in the world today. Just so their physical needs are taken care of, that's all they're interested in. But Jesus points out there's more to life than that. There are a lot of people working for things that are ultimately going to spoil one day just like food. The good times are going to run out. Life itself is going to run out. What then? If you're only living for the comforts of the world and what the world has to offer, then you have a very troubled future because the Bible says one of these days this world as we know it is coming to an end. And before this world comes to an end, your life might come to an end. Folks, every cemetery in the world is a testimony to the fact that physical life on earth comes to an end. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And so if the pleasures and comforts of this life are all you live for, you're in trouble. Because it's all going to end one day. And then what are you going to do? 
it's interesting how people will strive for the temporal and ignore the eternal. It's upside down thinking, but people do it every day. They'll work their fingers to the bone to have a little more money in the bank, and yet they'll go all of their lives and they'll never lay up any treasure in heaven. Jesus tells us here that we are to come to him to have eternal life. They said, Jesus, what kind of work do we have to do to do the work that God requires? And notice what Jesus says to them here. Believe in the one he has sent. Believe upon Jesus. There's no greater thing to do than that right there. It's not even a work because Jesus has done all the work for our salvation. We simply believe in him. It's so simple. And yet people miss it. And again, do you see the nerve these people have? They ask, what kind of miracle are you going to do to prove who you are? And it's incredible in light of what he's just done. He's just given them bread from heaven. It's what they were waiting for. And when someone came along, gave them the bread of heaven the way Moses had done, they were going to know that this was the Messiah. And Jesus has just done this. And yet they're asking, what are you going to do? I mean, the gall of these people, the blindness of these people. It just goes to show that if somebody is determined not to believe, it doesn't matter how much evidence is mounted up in favor of belief. They still don't believe. I want to ask you today, as an act of your will, Place your faith in Jesus. What more evidence do you need to hear about? Jesus came to earth on a salvation mission. What more does he have to do? Look at verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Folks, he's like the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one who's lost. And maybe you're that one. Is the Holy Spirit working in you? Because look at verse 44, what Jesus says here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Spirit has to be working on you, drawing you, because it's a spiritual birth from above. Is the Spirit of God working on you? Jesus will save you and he will keep you. Look at verse 39. Uh, he says he'll raise it up on the last day. In other words, he's able to keep those who he saves. Come to Christ today. Jesus spoke in John 6 earlier uh, of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They were offended by this because they misunderstood 
They interpreted it literally. Jesus is speaking here in spiritual terms, using a powerful figure of speech. You can't be passive and neutral about eating and drinking something. It involves action. You have to appropriate the food for yourself. You can't just sit and look at it on a plate. If you just sit and look at it on the plate, you'll starve. You've got to ingest it. And that's how the Christian life is. There's nothing passive or neutral about coming to Christ. The Spirit of God is working on a human heart. We have to repent and believe. You say, which is it? Is it God's work? Yes. God initiates salvation. God's Spirit convicts us of our sin and our need of Christ. What's man called upon to do in Scripture? Repent of their sins and believe in Him. You've got to take action. That's what trust is. It's active. And if you will do that, Christ will save you. Because He's the source of life. I like what C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, God designed us to run on Him. He Himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. Or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. If you are trusting in something or someone else, you will die. Look at verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Here's Jesus' audience and they're they're wanting the kind of manna their fathers enjoyed. They want to hang on to that tradition. And Jesus is saying to them, your fathers had that. And yet they still died. Christ is saying, I'm here today offering you something better than that. You see, folks, even our traditions and what we want will ultimately end in death. Come to Christ. He's the source of life. But not only is He the source of life, but I want you to lastly see He's the satisfaction of life. They all ate everything that they wanted. And nobody went away hungry. Everybody was satisfied. And folks, that's what God does with all of our needs when He meets our needs. He is perfectly able to satisfy us. Amen? Go back to verse 35. Look at verse 35. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. One of the ancient Jewish ways of looking at how things would be when the Messiah came was the abundance of food. They thought the, they believed that the Messianic age would be characterized in terms of a feast. 
you've got to remember most of these people lived from one meal to the next. And so the image of a continual feast was a wonderful image to them. And Jesus is telling them that in him, this is what they will find. In the deepest reserves of their heart, there will be lasting satisfaction like the kind of satisfaction that comes from a, a very appealing meal. That's what Christ offers. You don't need to fear that if you come to Jesus that somehow or another life is going to be pale and mundane. The one who gives you eternal life is also the one who gives you abundant life and he satisfies you. Once you have peace with God, you're able to enjoy the peace of God in your life. And then you're truly able to live. Is that the life that you enjoy? Jesus can give it. Only Jesus can give it. I want you to bow your heads with me please. And as you do, perhaps I'm speaking to somebody here today that you know you need to come to Christ. That's your greatest need. And I want to say to you, everything that his word says he will bring to your life, he will. But you have to come to him. You have to come to him. Don't wait too late. Today may be the only day you have to come to Christ. You never know. Are you like the disciples? You're busy calculating how you can solve all of your problems and you've not even factored Christ into the equation. Why don't you turn some of those things in your life you're calculating about over to Him? All of those things that trouble you and you don't know what you're going to do about them. Lay those things at His feet. Because folks, I can guarantee you, somewhere along the line, you're going to be in a situation where all the human resources in the world will not fix your problems. But you'll find that Christ truly does and He truly satisfies. Also, I want to encourage you to be like the little lad. He gave what he had to Jesus. Give your life, your testimony, your spiritual gift, the service you render. Give it all to Jesus and ask Him to multiply what may seem to you to be very little, but to multiply and use it to be a blessing to others. And you know what? You might be the one who ultimately stands back and you're amazed at what Christ has been able to do with your life and what you yield to Him. Father, we thank you for this text. Wonderful text. Messianic claim about Jesus being the bread of life. Lord, help us not to miss it like so many in the crowd missed it. Lord, I pray for that one today who needs to come to you. They've been trying to figure things out on their own for perhaps decades.
And Lord, I trust that even now your Holy Spirit is at work in their hearts. The book of Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I pray that they would come to you. For that one here today who feels like they are at the end of their rope and they've tried everything. God, may they lay that issue, that problem, that trial at your feet. May they see what you can do when they yield everything up in life to you. That person who's been hiding their light under the basket, so to speak, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. They've not been yielding their testimony and yielding their spiritual gift to you. God, I pray that they would lay all of that at your feet. However small and insignificant they may think that it is, may they lay it at your feet. And God, may you show them what you can do through what they put at your disposal. Lord, we thank you that you satisfy. You satisfy deeply. You satisfy completely. You give us life. You give us joy. You give us abundance. Lord, may we feast on you. All that we're looking for in life is found in you, Jesus. There is no other. There is no other. God, may we not waste our time looking for others, looking for other things that can deeply satisfy us. May we look only to Christ and find not only life, but abundant life and joy. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand please?